I'm not big on small talk. I'm not big on what I think I sometimes perceive as not wanting to waste other people's time. It's not so much that I think my time is as precious, but I know everything people are doing and that I'm asking them to do. And so I'm kind of all business. One of the things I miss about being in an office is actually, I think, the ability for people to see different sides of me and me sort of different sides of them. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it, from the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the Skim from a Couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Hey everyone, it's Carly. Today, my guest is Jessica Lesson. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of The Information, a subscription-based digital media company covering technology and business. Subscribers get access to deeply reported stories on the inner workings of companies like Apple, Google, Facebook, and more. Before going out on her own, Jessica spent eight years as a tech reporter and editor for The Wall Street Journal. Jessica, thank you for joining me and welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thanks for having me, Carly. I love listening to this podcast, so I'm thrilled to be here. I was saying, just as you got kind of mic'd up, it feels very weird to be on the other side of interviewing a journalist like you, but we're going to jump into it, which is first question, our most standard question, skim your resume. Well, I wanted to be a reporter for as long as I can remember and had a series of internships starting in high school at my local newspaper where... I wrote about why there were so many nail salons and how they could all stay in business. So didn't really have a sense of supply and demand back then, but was interested in in poking my nose around. I then interned at the Associated Press, the Boston Globe, and the Wall Street Journal and clung to that internship so that they would not let me leave the building and convince them to hire me. So I worked as a tech reporter at the Journal for eight years covering everything from the rise of online video to Apple to Google, Yahoo, sort of the rise of the internet, if you will. That beat took me out to San Francisco. And then after eight years at the Journal, I loved covering the tech industry. And it seemed to me that tech was disrupting news in very, very fundamental ways. Most significantly, it was getting publishers obsessed with online advertising and traffic in a way that I felt was really lowering the quality of news content. And so I launched the information as a subscription business to swing back to quality over quantity. And I guess seven years in, uh, we have one of the largest newsrooms of tech reporters around the world and are breaking major stories every day. We're going to dig into so much of that, but I'm curious, what would people be surprised to learn about you? Well, I think probably many things. I hope many things, but probably that I never, ever, ever thought I was going to start a company. I actually remember grousing to my husband, you know, maybe a decade ago, why is everyone leaving big company jobs to start a company? Wouldn't the world be better if they were adding their talents and energy sort of into the traditional system? So I, I, I think I even wrote a a story at the journal about like, you know, there are too many entrepreneurs or something to that vein. But, you know, lo and behold, eventually you catch the itch. And and I think the world has just made starting a company so, I I was going to say appealing, but as you know, Carly, there are times it's quite tough. And I say maybe anything but appealing, but 
it just felt like there was a huge opportunity and I went for it, but it was quite a swing from sort of being very down on entrepreneurship to becoming one. You mentioned in in your skim of your bio that you began your journalism career at a young age and you went on to work for the Crimson while you were at Harvard and then were able to turn an internship into a job at the journal. I think that the, one of the most popular questions that we get asked was, how do I turn my internship into something full-time? What is your advice on how to do that? Don't leave the building. That was really my (laughs) advice. And so I kind of lucked out because I was working on this big project. It was on salary data that the government was putting out. It was a once in every year report about what was happening to wages across a huge number of jobs. And I had planned a really big feature with my editor on this. And they pushed back the release date. And so I said, well, I've got to write this story. You know, you don't want to miss this big feature. And at the journal, you had an approval process for big features and the feature had been approved and all of that. And so, you know, my internship was supposed to be up August, whatever. The data was coming out first week in September. And I, I just sort of made the case to literally extend my security badge access. And that kept me in the building and it allowed me to kind of swing by the office of the recruiter at the end of the day to see if there were any updates about job openings. And I say this, I still like cringe a little because it's clearly quite aggressive, but you know what? Reporting requires being aggressive. And I think I perhaps demonstrated my passion and that I'd sit outside my sources offices if I needed to. So I think just showing your value and just sort of being able to say, well, you want this story, you want this story, I'm here, I can do it. There's also a lot of luck. I got to say, my first job was really covering emerging internet trends. And I was 22 years old. And that, you know, actually being 22 is an asset for that job. And I remember the person who hired me asked me if I had a MySpace account. And I I did actually, I'm not sure I had accessed it recently, but I did. And while I don't think that's why I got the job, I, I think it probably didn't hurt either. So also recognizing a good amount of luck. We, at at the information we've hired, we have summer interns and we've hired about half of them full-time. And and from my perspective, every boss just wants to know, is this person going to be a great fit and contribute? And I think if you can demonstrate that, particularly at a company like ours where we're growing quickly and we need to hire more people, that's the best sort of ticket to any job. You are known for having very strong relationships with the subjects that you cover. You've had strong relationships with tech entrepreneurs since really the beginning of your career. How do you start to build those relationships? We recently had Kara Swisher on the the show, who is also very well known in in the journalism space, specifically in tech and media. She's also really known for having relationships and there's a, a fearlessness to her. How would you kind of compare your style to hers? You know, I think my style is is actually just being very transparent, upfront, and clear with people. And as sort of what we think of as media and journalism has really expanded, I think executives, you know, they feel like they're probably attacked or confronted by reporters who want something all day long and and also maybe misled, right? People who call about one thing, do another thing. And and my style has always been very direct. I'm writing a story about X. I really want to know why. Can you help me? And I think over time, and it does take time, I've been writing about these very companies since 2005 or beyond. You know, you just, oh, Jessica's calling. She's going to be a straight shooter. 
And I think that just kind of adds up that consistency being very upfront. I think early on in my career and, and maybe less so now, but still important, I'm interested in this stuff. I'm not a necessarily booster of technology. One of the reasons I started the information was I was wanted to counteract just the pure hype around startups and founders that you were seeing back seven years ago. But I am generally curious to understand how things work. And that is, I think, also helped build relationships. People who, when you pick up the phone, really feel like you want to and learn. And it's a bit sad to me now. I think in many cases, the relationships between reporters and the companies they cover, while they have to be adversarial to some degree, they're like 90% adversarial. And even, you know, a decade ago, if I called up Google and really wanted to understand what was behind some AI thing they announced, they'd put someone on the phone to explain that. And, you know, those days I, I think are, they, it happens, but not that often. But I just encourage, I think, be yourself, be direct and recognize that things take time. And, you know, my best sources today are, are a lot of them are, are people I met very early in my reporting career. Do you have a work personality and like a real life personality? Probably a question for my team. I think my I, my work personality is like fairly impatient and to the point, I think. Especially now when we're all just feeling so pulled in so many directions. I think I'm not big on small talk. I'm not big on what I think I sometimes perceive as not wanting to waste other people's time. It's not so much that I think my time is as precious, but I know everything people are doing and that I'm asking them to do. And so I, I'm kind of all business. I, I try to break out of that. And we've done a lot of, of fun things too. But I one of the things I miss about being in an office is, is actually, I think, the ability for people to see different sides of me and me sort of different sides of them. But at the end of the day, you know, we're, we're in a competitive field. We are hyper ambitious with what we're trying to do. And I like to get down to business, I guess. So how do you leverage, you know, kind of getting to the point and being down to business into networking, which is a lot of small talk. We're going to talk about how you went out on your own to actually build your own business. But so much of that is built around networking, being able to network to hire, being able to network to whether you take investment or not. How do you channel that to, to get that kind of stuff done? It's a great question. And I think probably do a lot less of it now, to be honest, whereas earlier in my career, just really as a when I was full-time reporting, I would be on the sidelines of every conference. I'd be on the sidelines of conferences I was not invited to. I spent many years in the Sun Valley bushes at the Allen & Company conference, which I highly recommend. There's the osmosis of running into people. You know, a certain part of my career, it was really just like a be everywhere, always say yes kind of thing. And now I have two young kids as well, so that's less when I think about a person, either because I'm reading something about them or I'm reading something that reminds me of them, I send them an email, you know, and it's it's a very light touch. It's authentic. I think just being in touch digitally now is wonderful. And, and while I worry about digital reporting, I worry deeply about this. I, I If I enter a newsroom that's quiet, I get really anxious because the types of relationships you build, you, you can sort of catch up on a relationship over text, but you can't build one, particularly one that has to be based on sort of hyper accuracy and everything. But in terms of just staying in touch with people casually, I think it works well. And I always appreciate it too, when someone 
see something that they think will be useful to me. That that didn't come naturally to me. I, I guess I spent so much of my reporting life, like, quote, bothering people or reaching out to them or asking things for them that that it didn't come naturally to just sort of communicate if I didn't have to. But yeah, particularly now I've enjoyed it. And sometimes someone will say, hey, you know, want to pop on Zoom and say hi or something like that. And I enjoy that very much. I, I've also sort of jumped at opportunities to work with more experienced editors on boards and judging panels and all sorts of things. And while that can become a, a quite a significant time commitment, I, I just actually learn so much. So I, I try to make sure I leave enough time for that too. So I don't know if you remember the first time that we met, we were at the same conference on the West Coast and we were sitting, I think in the coffee break outside and you introduced yourself to, to me. And I remember you said something that was along the lines of like, you're usually here covering events like these, not here as a founder. And I'm so curious your experience of covering founders for so many years and then becoming one yourself. What were the things that you realize maybe you didn't appreciate beforehand. How has your perspective shifted? Love this question because it, and it continues to shift and evolve. I think one of the first things was as a reporter, I was so focused on just sort of news and getting scoops and stuff that I, I never really thought about what I think founders spend most of their time on, which is management and recruiting and internal stuff. And I, I remember asking a founder, what have you been up to lately? And he said recruiting. And I thought it was the ultimate dodge. Like I thought, oh, he's launching some big new secret project. He's not recruiting. And, you know, day one of the information, I was like, no, he's recruiting. And then he's still recruiting. And so, you know, I think that is a good angle to kind of have, right? To understand how the leadership of companies big and small actually spends their time and, and all the things related to that, you know, by the same token, as a reporter, if I see a huge amount of turnover at a company, that's a red flag. And I think it should be, but it, of what? Sometimes that's a sign that a leader is fixing their mistakes or that just they, they're making a different strategic choice and making some hard calls, but, but the company's moved in a different direction. So there's sort of that whole world of those issues that I think are sort of ignored by the press, but, but just dominate the time of, of so many people. There are a lot of other sort of things too, like we launched an app with Apple and man, that process, I had covered Apple as a reporter at the Wall Street Journal, you know, I interviewed Tim Cook a ton of times, but, but seeing the app store tell us that the font had to be blue, not red was mind boggling to me. And, and, you know, so I wrote a story about it that I was trying to, to share and peel back the curtain on some of that stuff. There are many, many times that as a reporter, you know, I see a story and the story is the facts point to some sort of story or angle that's really tough on the company or something that isn't working. And as a founder, I might empathize, but, you know, it's still newsworthy. And so I think most of the time the dual perspective helps, but there are, there are times it's at odds as well. When you launched the information about seven years ago or so, you really leaned into subscription at a time when a lot of people were like, why no one's going to pay for content. And you didn't just lean into subscription, you know, low price point, like it's actually quite expensive. The subscription to the information is $399 a year. That's yep. an investment. What were you seeing at the time that you don't think other people saw? 
So one was this perspective of a reporter working at a publication that was really focusing on traffic. Now, even the, the Wall Street Journal had a similarly priced subscription, but the sort of obsession, I was just a period, and this has changed, but of obsession with traffic. You know, I was being asked to live blog Apple events because they were getting a lot of traffic. And I just knew in my bones that that was not my best journalism. And that was not what readers interested in Apple wanted from me. And so more than anything, it was my perspective of, you know, I know the stories I could be doing right now and I'm doing this. And as long as the metrics that are really the true north of an organization are going to be traffic and eyeballs, I'm, I'm never going to really devote enough to those higher impact stories. So I think that was, was my personal experience. I also felt like media wants to be all things to all people because we love reach and that's inherent in what we do. But I think, you know, what the internet has done is no one's going to be all things to all people because you're going to find your sort of what you need across the internet. And so I think I saw this shift to specialization that I think we've now seen, you know, times 10, times 100. I, I think this was something Airbnb said or someone said, you know, in the very early days, it's better to be loved by 100 than liked by 1,000 people. And that was not how media thought. Media just thought, you know, bigger is better. And I really thought, you know, I want to be doing this for the very, very long term, but I want to build passionate fans at each step. And I think it was also more of a, a long-term focus. We didn't take any outside investment. We, we haven't. We were cash flow positive two and a half years in. We were just taking a different timeline as well. And I think that was different. And maybe there's the very last thing is people saw the lack of high-end digital subscription businesses as a function of people wouldn't pay. And I saw it as a function of the products weren't worth paying for. No one had tried to build the thing that was worth $400 a year or a dollar a day to business professionals. How do you define why something is worth $400 a year versus a lower price point or versus free? You know, it's in the eye of the reader. We have tens and tens of thousands of subscribers and growing faster each year and about 100,000 or about 500,000 regular readers. And I define that based on growth and momentum, you know, are we, are trends going in the right way? You get one idea around a company to invest in. You learn about one company that you may want to join someday as a startup. Is that worth four hundred? I know, I don't know. There's no right or wrong answer, but I also know that it raises the quality of our journalism because our team won't write a story if it's already out there. And that I think is really, it's great journalists don't want to write the 10th version of the story that's out there. So it's allowed us to recruit a top-notch team. And it also, I think, allows us to really stand for something and be different as a brand. One of the things that's been commented about, about you and the information is that you are too close to the people that you cover. And I think some of that comes from, you know, your husband has worked at Facebook, you went to Harvard, as did Mark Zuckerberg, and you obviously share a lot of inner circles with a lot of the people you cover. How do you receive criticism like that? How do you digest that? And how do you think about that? I listen to it, but, you know, honestly, anyone who says that has not read the information. I mean, companies tell us when we call for comment, they call their lawyers first. And from a perspective of we, we are just tough, 
we are tough on Facebook. We are tough on Apple. We are, we are tough on everybody. Again, what matters is the journalism that we put out and it being fair. And, and I think, um, you know, I'm just so proud of the team on that. And, and every journalist and every person who's involved in the news business has personal relationships and knows people and has a spouse that, you know, so everyone kind of works through specific issues, but at the end of the day, I think the work does kind of speak for itself and I'm really proud of our work. I'm talking to you the week after there was really an attack on our capital by those who were incited into insurrection and were seeing social media platforms figure themselves out, figure out their role of policing, figure out their role of censorship. As a somebody who has studied these companies for so long, what do you think the future of these companies looks like? You know, it's a fascinating time. And there, there's been a huge sea change in how the biggest tech companies have approached moderation. And, you know, there's debates. I, I think there are a lot of signs that they just didn't take it seriously. I think there are also a lot of signs that that it's a damn tough issue and not as clear cut. But what what I think is important is is to recognize how clearly they've changed their tune. And, and I think they are going to be forced largely by employees, to be honest, who I think are asserting themselves in new ways internally to maintain these standards and, and, and to really police much more aggressively a, a variety of, of behaviors. You know, I mean, what I think what turned people was the extent of the horrors of, of what sort of happened. And it was sort of a line in the sand. But I think you're right to sort of frame it as what now and how globally are they going to react, whether it's Facebook and YouTube and Twitter on content moderation or Google and Apple on what's allowed on their app stores, or you see Stripe not accepting, allowing Trump to process payments. So I think when we look back at this moment, it will it will be very significant for sort of the consistency with which companies act and also the scope of companies, right? You start to have AWS, Stripe, companies that are, are more behind the scenes infrastructure providers taking stands. I'm, I'm interested in what about, you know, companies where we don't know that they're who their customers are because maybe they're like a Slack or something like that, right? Are we going to see them kind of kicking off customers? But I don't think there's sort of a turning back from from showing the the sort of force and power that they can have. I also think it's worth recognizing it, there, in, in Silicon Valley, there, there's been a lot of calls for companies to really do more content moderation. And I think in this case, it was, of course, beyond warranted, but it's an extraordinary amount of power that they've exerted. You know, for one or two individuals to decide to to cut off the president of the United States is, is a very, very big deal. And so I also think just it will certainly renew calls for just scrutiny on their overall power. Again, as a very specific type of journalist that's covered this well before you had your own company. And now when you've like really gone deep on so many of these companies, like the, the question that's kind of been percolating over these last few years, are these companies platforms? Are they media companies in and of themselves? Are they publishing tools? Like, you know, people want to kind of put them in different buckets and have those buckets sort of subscribe what they can and can't do. When you think about how the future of journalism kind of plays into all of that, you saw 
the future in many ways seven years ago. You saw subscription before a lot of people did. What are you seeing now? So I think the future of journalism as it relates to tech companies needs to be like as clean a divorce as possible. News has for far too long looked to other tech platforms for distribution, for economics, for quote reach, you know, but Newsflash, you can use technology to build an audience, a a huge audience, you know, that you own and control. Maybe use these platforms, you know, put your content on, like use them intelligently. But I think these industries should really break up if really just feel that very strongly. They, They have very different incentives and missions and core reasons for existing. And It's been really wonderful to see publishers kind of wake up in the past several years and realize the power they have over their own audiences. And I I hope that pendulum really, really swings because we're also seeing tech companies realize that cash-strapped news organizations will take their money, you know? And so you see uh, deals like Facebook paying the New York Times a lot of money for being in the news tab. And and things that in many ways publishers have been sort of demanding because, of course, their content is, is driving a lot of usage on these platforms. But, you know, that, that's another dependency that won't be around forever and that's going to have consequences. I really think we should be on our different trajectories and wish each other well and leave it at that. I want to go back to you as an entrepreneur. What are you best at and what is your area of development? Which is like also a really nice way to say, what are you not good at? A lot of things. As, as I said, I'm not good at patience. I am not good at taking the time to celebrate. That's sort of a silly one to not be good at. But I think I struggle to understand, I think, you know, all the different things sometimes people have going on and ways they want to work. And, you know, I, I think I've sort of come a long way, but personally, have, have, as a goal, is trying to make more time for that because particularly now, I, I think it's really important. I've improved a lot as a recruiter in just understanding how to find and recruit new talent, but that's a huge sort of focus. I often say as as a journalist, I I have huge blind spots around marketing. You know, I'm so literal in facts. I don't have the skills to like zoom out. Now, fortunately, we have a a fabulous marketer, Guillaume from Netflix and Instacart, who's built a huge team who's, who's excellent at that. So I think that's the kind of fun part of, of building a company is, is filling in and, and expanding, you know, rapidly the, the skill set. I think, I hope one of my strengths is just like my conviction and passion for what we're doing. I mean, I believe so deeply that the fate of quality journalism is tied to the right business model, the right long-term model, independence, building a culture where great journalists want to build the next phase of their career and all these things. And I, I believe that so, so deeply. We're going to move to our lightning round. Okay. You ready? Yes. Morning person or night owl? Morning person. Last TV show you binge watched? Bridgerton. We, we should talk about this. Okay. okay. Favorite quick dinner to make? Omelets. For dinner? Interesting. Last time you negotiated for yourself? With my four-year-old constantly... This was like over whether he was going to get dressed first or eat breakfast or brushes. I mean, it's just like a constant thing. And he's unfortunately getting really good at it. So it's causing some problems. But yeah. What do you think is the most interesting story the information has done? 
man, I just caught up on a story we wrote yesterday about why everyone in tech is apparently moving to Miami, but what's really going on and sort of like the, the, uh, the sort of behind the scenes like politics. And I just thought that was super, super fascinating. I, I'm very proud of the work we've done around sexual harassment in the venture capital community. And, you know, right around the time of the Harvey Weinstein investigations and the Me Too um, movement uh, a couple of months before we, we started writing about that happening in Silicon Valley. It really felt like we were a lone voice at the time. And and honestly, it was a very sort of nerve wracking experience, but I'm, I'm really proud of that. And the team does that, you know, every year in different ways. And I think, you know, I'm incredibly proud. We were the first to report that Andy Rubin had left Google amid a sexual harassment investigation, which following subsequent reporting from the New York Times led to the walkout, which led to the formation of, of the Alphabet Union last week too. So that that was a, a pretty direct line of impact. What's a company everyone should start paying attention to that they're not? So Chime, we wrote about them again recently, but Chime is $15 billion valuation digital bank. What I love about them also is the time, investors in Silicon Valley would not give them the time of day. I think of building an incredible business. FinTech is a really important area to watch and they serve a sort of a customer that isn't as common in Silicon Valley, people who are looking for no fee debit cards and sort of lower income people looking for alternative to the banking system, but they, you know, are turning it into a really incredible business. What's a company we should talk about less? Oh man, all of them. No. Um, you know, look, it's it's hard in technology because these companies are, are just really, really important. And every time I, you know, read the 19th Amazon headline of the day, I realize we're, we're this is like that tiny part of Amazon's business and there's so much more. So, yeah, I, I'd be kind of hard pressed to pick a company. I, I wish in general we I, we read less. I'd like to read fewer hot takes and more new facts. I love some good analysis when it warrants, but just being able to like tell us something we didn't know. Jessica Lesson, congratulations on everything. Huge fans here. And thank you so much for skimming from the couch with us. Thanks for having me, Carly. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 